Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybooks together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. What does it take to accomplish the impossible? What does it take to shatter our own limitations, exceed our expectations and turn our biggest dreams into our most recent achievements? Well, my next guest is someone who I've wanted to release this episode actually for quite some time. We actually had two conversations that I've combined into one because he is so interesting and he's got a lot of fascinating research and things to say. And he's got one heck of an incredible story at that as well. His name is Stephen Kotler. Now, for those of you that don't know who he is, Stephen is a New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning journalist, and the executive director of the Flow Research collective which we do talk all about flow during this conversation like i said it was split into two parts that i've combined so uh, this is kind of like a masterclass in a sense of flow what it actually is how you can apply it to your life how to get in the flow why flow is important you name it it's all in this one Stephen is one of the world's leading experts on human performance. And we also mentioned about how flow impacts our performance as a whole. Stephen is the author of nine bestsellers out of 13 books, believe it or not, including The Art of the Impossible, which came out last year. The Future is Faster Than You Think, Stealing Fire, which he actually co-wrote with uh, Jamie Wheel, who's an alumni of the Storybox, The Rise of Superman, Bold and Abundance. His work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, translated into over 40 languages, and has appeared in over 100 publications to date, including the New York Times uh, Magazine, Wired, Atlantic Monthly, and many, many more. Stephen is also the co-host of the Flow Research Collective Radio, a top 10 iTunes science-based podcast, along with his wife, author, Joy Nicholson. They co-founded a uh, dog sanctuary, which I cannot for the life of me pronounce the name of. It's Rancho de Chihuahua. I got that right. Probably didn't, but anyway. Uh, And Stephen does so many other incredible things as well. Among flying a MIG-17 Russian fighter jet, 
But as he says, that is a different story. This is a, once again, fascinating deep dive into flow, peak performance, how we can become the very best versions of ourselves possible, what happens when we do end up getting into flow, and so many interesting questions. Stephen actually said to me uh, at the end of our first conversation that I asked, I got to ask him questions that he's never been asked before, which was a pretty uh, awesome thing to have said. Um, but I know you guys are going to love this conversation. So if you do, please share it around to your friends and family. You guys know the drill. Uh, don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts as well. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It's time to journey with me into this story box as we unbox the wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Stephen Codler. Thanks for having me. I apologize. Apologize if I put you. No, that's a, that's a really old bio because Creating <laughs> Equilibrium as a company is no longer a company. It's a new company called Planet Home. Um, like I don't know where you got that, but it's like it, it, that, that's an older one. Uh, and I, I've seen that bio floating around. I'm not quite sure who somebody has it, and they keep sending it to people. And I like that's certainly on me and not on you. By the way, let me fall on the sword. You, I'm sure you did the home your homework, and somewhere in my team, there's somebody who's got a wrong bio, and it came to you. Well, I, I do have to say, it wasn't from any any of your team members. It was actually from your website. So oh, I, I see, do. See, that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> that's, see, that's even worse. Uh, it, it's okay. I appreciate you making the adjustments, and oh, I'll, I'll do a more formal introduction later on. But thank you so much, sir, for making the okay. time. Um, I normally have one question that I love asking all my guests to start off with, which is what does success look like to you in your life? Um, short answer today, you know, today I like, I'm, I am doing everything I've ever wanted to do in the world. I'm pretty much doing it at the level I want to do it at. I'm playing with, like people I love and who are amazing to work with, I'm asking, I'm getting to ask, you know, the cool, as far as I'm concerned, the coolest science questions you can ask. And I'm getting to answer them with the best scientists in the world. You know what I mean? Like I, 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 I like what my books are doing. I like, so I like, I sort of the, the quest, the, the harder question is sort of like, what's, what's next? Not that there's any next, but like, I really like, I've been, success looks like exactly like where I'm at. This was sort of the goal to play at this level. And I'm, you know, I like that, you know, I'd like to make a bigger difference in, in for animals. But other than that, um, you know, I really like the level I'm playing. At. I, I think you can always make a bigger difference for the environment and animals and things like that. But what's one question at the moment in science that, you're looking at that you haven't been able to solve currently? Well, we're getting closer and closer. to The two big questions we've been working out, the Flow Research Collective for like the last couple of years, um, and they're actually sort of related, is uh, what actually happens in the brain at a neural dynamics level. So like that's the network level of the brain. It's a level nobody's really looked at it uh, during the onset of a flow state which is right, the peak performance state known as flow, which is the heart of our research. We study the neurobiology of that. So what goes on in your brain and your body when you're in a state of consciousness that allows you to perform at your best. 
That's our central focus. And um, we've gotten better and better and better information over the years about what is transpiring inside the state itself. But neural markers and the signature of what happens in the front end of the state has been a, a long time mystery. So that's one puzzle we've been poking at very, very hard. Um, and the other one is the endocannabinoid system, which is the neurochemical system uh, that THC responds to, right, reacts with. But it, you know, it's basically a, it's a master system in the body. It modulates every stress response at, you know, as, as like, a, it's the first thing that happens and then a bunch of stuff comes downstream. So the problem in a sense in science is all the downstream stuff was mapped before we even knew this thing existed. So almost all that work has to, so we have to, we've been trying to go back. We know that endocannabinoids play a major role in flow, but trying to really map that out. So we've been working uh, in partnership with a company called Ohio Energetics um, that make um, really, 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 really high quality CBD and, and have products that like working with them to try to map the relationship with the endocannabinoid system and flow. So those are two questions we've been really poking at. Um, they're really deep and they're nerdy, right? Um, but they have huge consequences downstream for really simple questions like you want more flow in your life. With these maps in place, we're going to be so much. I mean, we're good at, you know, our trainings are really good at getting people in the flow. But with these maps in place, we could be so much better. And this, it, it's exciting. It sounds super geeky, but it has really practical, pragmatic applications right downstream. So that's what we've been really focused on. Very fascinating. I'm actually a geek at heart, if you cannot tell it from my, my back wall. Um, I got all the books, all the movies. Oh, I, no, all I got is your microphone. You got it. When you get out of the way, I see you're a geek. Now I know. <laughs> I got it. Yes. Uh, and what I'm curious about is what actually goes into the, the research and the study of these two big questions. Like what, What's the day-to-day -day occurrences? Like, how do you go about figuring them out? And is it so, possible to, um, to do them? With the endocannabinoid system, um, it has been, uh, it's been a research program that we've been running. So we've been running experiments. These stretch from surveys to actual in the lab things. Um, we spent God knows how long. You don't even want to try to do any kind of hemp research, cannabis research in America. Like it, it's a mess. It just to get the IRB, the internal review board that allows us to like do the research was like a year and a half. And almost we had to invent an entire new protocol and get it, you know, approved by the government and all kinds. So it was a lot of, it sounds small. It sounded like it was a mess. It took freaking forever. It, most, nobody's, I don't think anybody cared enough to wade through this mess to get to where we, we got. Um, we thought there was going to be a way to shortcut it in partnership with UCLA. And we thought they were going to be able to cut through the red tape, but they weren't. <laughs> so anyways, um, and, and beyond that, beyond all that work, um, a massive literature review, right? There's, there's been tremendous amounts of work on cannabis and it's really, it's, it's complicated. I'll give you an example. So this is one of the funniest things most people, don't know how sick and twisted America can be, but they set up the National Institute of Drug Abuse, right? Uh, to and so if you wanted until very recently to study marijuana or cannabis or CBD or anything in that neighborhood in America, you had to get approval from NIDA. NIDA solely exists to say drugs are bad; don't ever do them, right? They ran, I kid you not, 
39,000 studies over 15, 20 years trying to prove that marijuana is bad for you. You would think, by the way, this means that there was like, there was somebody at like, whose job it was at like study 19,375 who had to go to their boss and be like, look, we've run 19,375 studies so far. We can't find anything about this drug that's harmful for you. I think the 19,376 one though, it's gonna be, I mean like, what kind of conversations were they having, right? Like what, I, I can't even imagine it. Anyways, the point is, um, most of the studies that have been done found really interesting things about, say, the neurochemistry of THC, but they're all slanted. They're all trying to prove a thing, this is bad for you, that turns out isn't true at all um, and has really sort of shaded a lot of the research, but there's good data in there. So besides all the cannabis studies and THC studies and CBD studies and everything else and all the um, there's a lot of genetic knockout studies and things like that. So there's a lot of new stuff we've had to bring in. Um, there's all the old stuff. So the literature review itself took almost a year, year and a half. And it was my chief scientist and I think two interns almost full time on just that stuff. So that, that's been what that was. The first two seconds of flow, um, which is what I'm calling it, like what happens in the brain over the first two seconds of flow. Um, is uh, started out um, as a giant literature review as well. And where it's leading is um, at the neural dynamics level, when you wanna prove something there, you build a computational model. So we like, once this paragraph, this paper that, and we're getting very close to done, the very next thing we're going to do is take what we've done, build the computational model and start testing it that way. So that's how that one is aimed. There's also um, in the first two seconds of flow, there's um, four neural markers that we find show up at state onset that nobody else has even noticed um, or looked for before. So this gives us, we're also working in our research division on a biophysical-based flow detector, something that can measure neurological and physiological signals. It's sort of like a, it's a neural net basically, but it'll tell, you know, with these, these inputs, are you in flow, are you not in flow? That's one of the places that is heading. And so, on top of the computational model, there are three or four experimentally, you know, validated paradigms right off the bat that we could do. And there's like greater stuff. There's like low hanging fruit, like diazepam, which blocks norepinephrine and dopamine in the brain. If our model is right, it should totally block flow. Like you just could not get into flow. So we'll know very like those, we probably won't do the pharmacological studies because it's just such a red tape for our lab to do it. We'll let somebody else's lab run that particular one. Um, I just, I don't like having to, pharmacological stuff is so many hoops to jump through. I feel like it's a waste of my time and there are labs that are better suited for it. So I'll let them do that work. But those are the things we're thinking, like computer model, computational model right away um, into three or four signatures into the biophysical waste flow detector kind of thing where we're aiming. Um, and that's probably two-year time horizon. Like that's probably what we're looking at for the next couple of years. Wow. Wow, I don't ever talk about this stuff on any any other podcast, I have to say. He's a geeky. Uh, I, love, I love this. Um, I'm curious about this flow state and turning it on and off. Like when we when we so, get 
when we get older, does that become harder for us to turn it on and off? Actually easier. So a couple things to know here, um, high level before we actually answer your question. One, the old idea about flow, and I mean old probably, it, I don't think anybody's thought it was true since the 70s or 80s, but it hasn't really formally. I think Rise of Superman is the first time somebody said it out loud in my book. Um, flow is not a binary. It's not a light switch. You don't, you're not in the zone or out of the zone. It's a four-stage process. So to put this in more colorful terms, about once a month, somebody comes to me and they're like, dude, dude, you got to study me. I'm in flow all the time, dude. Study me. And in the beginning, like I'm mostly an introvert. I don't really love people. And if you're in my face telling me I should study you, like you're creeping me out as is. Um, and in the beginning, I used to just like try to extricate myself as fast as possible. And now like it's happened so much. I think like I, it's a public service. And so I tell the truth and I'm like, you know, we have a word for that. We call that schizophrenia, <laughs> right? You don't get to live in a flow state. It's bad. That much dopamine pumping into your system. That's schizophrenia. That's not like you don't want to be there. Um, for a lot of other reasons. So it's not a binary, it's a cycle. And some of the stages in the cycle, the first and the last, the four stage process, first and the last are totally unflowing. Like the first stage is defined as struggle. It's miserable. You literally, the onset work we're doing on flow, this is not 100% accurate. This may not be accurate for everybody. More and more, it looks like you actually have to trigger the fight response just for a second, but literally the fight response. So you have to be like that worked up and that much of it, like it only has to last an instant, but it's that lean in instinct, that real that surge of aggression, that moment of attack mode that may, even if you are like playing with your dog and getting into flow that way to actually snap in, it may take like a moment where the wrestling gets serious or whatever. Like we don't know, but that more and more it's looking like that. And so the struggle phase it can stretch on forever, but even if it's brief, it's always going to be unpleasant. And there's a recovery phase on the back end of a flow state. It's flow is neurologically very expensive for the brain to produce. Um, and it burns up a lot of energy. And there's a there's a dark, you gotta go dark on the back end of it. And that's also because flow um burns out a lot of feel-good neurochemistry, shows up during the state. And some of those chemicals take a little while to replenish. Right, people who do drugs, they tell you if you do MDMA, three days later you have the serotonin blues, right? It's because you depleted all your serotonin. Same thing happens with cocaine and dopamine, blah, blah, blah. Well, flow, we have, you know, all those drugs do is release endogenous internal chemicals in our brain. We can burn those up just in the same way with drugs, and flow will do that, right? So you have to recover on the back end of the flow state. So it's sort of that. To answer your question, like how do we flip it on and off and does it go away more as we get older? So flow states have triggers. These are preconditions that lead to more flow. There are 22 that have been identified. There's probably way more, but there's 22 we know of. We're starting to think we understand how they work neurobiologically. We know they all drive focus into the present moment. Flow, flow only shows up when all of your attention is right here, right now. So it seems like there's three neurobiological ways to do that. You either push dopamine into the system, norepinephrine into the system. Neurochemicals are generally multi-tools. They do lots of different shit, but this dopamine, norepinephrine, that's anxiety, that's, or not anxiety, that's attention, it is anxiety, but it's also attention and focus and excitement, right? You mix those two chemicals together, that's romantic love. 
So if you've ever fallen in love, think about how much you can't stop paying attention to the person you're falling in love with. That's dopamine and norepinephrine. So flow triggers tend to kick those neurochemicals into your system or they lower cognitive load. All the crap you're trying to think about at any one time. By lower cognitive load, I liberate more energy that you can use to pay attention to the present moment. And you do. Your brain will spend it that way. It's a general rule. So it seems like what we know so far, flow triggers do those things. There may be some very special flow triggers that work off the visual system. Um, the depth of field things or stuff frame right past the eyes. This is the next place we're going to test and, and we're working on some VR stuff there around that. But this is where we are so far. So basically like all the triggers do that stuff. Any, you want more flow in your life, build your life around those triggers, right? This is your, this is your toolkit. Know where you are in the flow cycle because it's a map, right? Like certain tools you want to reach for and struggle certain tools you want to reach for during the recovery phrase on the back, right? Like, and they're different and they're also different individually based on your personality, right? I always say, this is a, this is one of the at, the, at the Flow Research Collective, we have a couple of foundationals that things that we, we really live by. One is, is really simply that personality never scales. And what I mean by that is what works for me will definitely not work for you. And the reason is, very foundational trait, like where you are in the introversion to extroversion scale or where you are on the risk tolerance scale. These are things that are either set up by genetics or early childhood experience and they're tough to change. You can, but they take a decade of work kind of thing. You don't do them overnight. Um, plays a foundational role in who you are peak performance. So like if I always tell people, look people, if what got me into flow got you into flow, we would be skiing through the trees at 50 miles an hour, listening to the Wu-Tang Clan stoned out of our minds, right? What worked for me worked for you. That's what I would train, right? I train about a thousand people a month. They both mostly C-suite executives and, and U.S. Special Forces. So the stoned out of your mind thing might not work so well. But like that, I don't do that, of course, because what works for me is not going to work for you. Biology scales. It's the very thing evolution designed to work for everybody. So when I say peak performance, which is what we focus on, all I mean is getting your biology to work for you rather than against you, mm. right? So that's at the core of sort of everything we're talking about. And your biology is different than my biology. So which triggers you're susceptible to now, right? And they may change over time, but like where you're at right now, they're, they're yours. They're not mine. And I always say like if, you know, the, the, the sign, of, you see this in the peak performance world and it makes me crazy, but some coach figures out, oh, this worked for me. Let me, you know, train somebody. There was a guy I met, super sweet guy, loved him. Loved him. He literally built, I'm talking like a seven-figure coaching business around the idea that like he should punch people in the face and they should learn to take it. And it's like I was like, I like I was like, okay, you you get that like you were probably abused as a child and why this is why it works for you. Like, let's just talk about what's really going on here. But you're crazy if you think breaking somebody's nose is going to like actually like really out them be right kind of stuff. But you see that stuff all the time and nobody stops to think about it. And I don't like, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. There's, there's a lot of like, I think really erroneous information floating out there and people are spending tons of money on stuff that doesn't work for the simple reason that like personality isn't designed to work for everybody. It's designed to work for you. Mm. Um, You know, anyways, that was a long freaking answer to your question. But the short answer is 
and we can get access to flow triggers. And it turns out for very clear adult development. So adult development is not like childhood development. Childhood development, you're going to go through your terrible twos no matter what. Adult development, you can get stuck, right? Like if you don't do your homework and, and work on yourself, you're going to get stuck, mm-hmm. um, right? Really, really clearly. But that, that, that said, if you do your homework, as you get older, your ego, which is really your prefrontal cortex, gets less of a stranglehold on you. And anytime your ego gets less of a stranglehold on you, you're going to have better access to flow. Even better, there's a shift that happens right around 40 or late 40s, early 50s. And there's a caveat, which is really weird. And I'll come to it in a second. But there's a big perspective shift at that transition in which on the other side of it, you gain a lot of access to empathy and multi-perspectival perspectives. You no longer have to be right in every situation. You can hold everybody else's perspective. That opens up a lot of novelty. New information comes in and novelty is a flow trigger. When we encounter novelty, it produces dopamine, huge spikes in dopamine. So novelty is a really good flow trigger to work with. And it's very much gated by how open you are to experience and other people and in at this natural transition. So literally the older you get, the better you can actually get at flow. Um, there's a lot of really, so there's an interesting case off of this that we're not going to go into. I'm just going to say it. With the health stuff that's coming, there's a really good case that companies are going to want to start hiring people at over 50. We're going to see an anti-youth movement. We're going to see an, an older employment movement. And it's based on what we know about cognitive high performance, provided we can get the health stuff right taken care of. And technology is really working hard there, especially because of COVID, because everything got a huge boost. All that beside the only caveat, just because it's cool and I think it's wild. If you want this expanded empathy and in your 50s and this kind of deeper perspective and this heightened flow, this is this isn't our work. It was work done at the Harvard Adult Development Project. But they found that you, if you don't forgive everybody who's done you wrong by around the age of 50, you're screwed. You're like you're what's gonna happen after 50 is awful, and all the like good things that come cognitively in adulthood. You don't, it's, and I don't know, it seems to lock you out, which is weird. That's got to be a biological thing, right? If if it showed up pretty consistently in in this Harvard adult studies, but like if it's happening across the boards at 50, that's got to be biological. And that's weird. And I'm curious about it, but um, it's important sort of safety tip. If you're carrying grudges into your forties, put them down that decade. I'm totally geeking out by all that. There's so many questions that I have. Like just out of that short answer, <laughs> one of them, one of them being, um, so as you get older, like the way I, the way I'm thinking about it is you actually get better at being in the flow state. But then I'm curious about when you're older, it's a lot harder for you to actually recover from being in the flow state. Is that where the technology comes in? Yeah. So it's, I mean, well, so Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who's the godfather of flow psychology, once said to me, he said, one of the big things that you need to be careful about as you age is if you are using a lot of body-based techniques to get into flow, meaning I hurl myself down mountains at high speeds. I'm, I'm skiing, I'm downhill mountain biking. When I'm not doing those things, I'm surfing, right? Like that's what, that's what I'm doing for flow. His point was, 
have a backup plan as you get older and your body start right, like learn to play guitar or like find something to replace those things with. Um, otherwise, you're kind of screwed. By the way, this is the same way when we work with U.S. Special Forces or uh, we work with a lot of either professional action sport athletes who are trying to transition out of being professional action sport athletes or a lot of like Navy SEALs who are transitioning out of being Navy SEALs or right. Like how those are super high flow jobs and flow is a really addictive. These, those neurochemicals are addictive. So it's a really addictive state. And I'm, I'm literally like cutting you off from drugs at the source. And the only way to successfully make that transition is to replace it with creativity. We found um, it's the only way to match the level of, of neurochemistry, it seems. But um, so there's some physical stuff, but like, I'll give you an example. There's 50% um, of the human body is today replaceable with, with bionics. The first bionic human body part was Hugh Hare's bionic ankle developed seven years ago, right out of MIT. And from there, from then to now, we've 50% of the human body is replaceable with bionics. There are now skiing exoskeletons that you can put around your knee that basically take 90% of the knee, right? That's already here today. They're just not widely distributed. So all this stuff is coming. And the other thing is, I so I haven't written it yet, but I'm playing with a book about peak performance uh, into your 70s, 80s, and 90s because the data is really wild, man. Mm -hmm. Like when people, Ken Fullerton, who's one of the guys who really works on this, a couple other people I know, they're finding if you take care of the machine and you understand the metrics, and they're weird. So I'll give you I'll give you an example. Take a guess. What's the number one predictor of longevity? I have no idea. Leg strength. What? Leg strength. Why it's leg strength? Because, so the number one cause of death for the aged, if you don't get killed by cancer and you don't get killed by heart disease, you're going to fall down and break a hip or break something and the secondary infection is going to kill you. That's the number one cause. And the leg strength is the number one, like you keep your legs strong, you also maintain your balance. The other thing is there's weird things um, psychologically about having stronger stronger legs, your body reacts, like you, it has a stronger base and there's a psychological, it lowers cognitive load a little bit. Like you're, you're it, so it confers a lot of feeling of strength too, oddly, um, which is really funny because a lot of like gym rats will like, they'll work their arms and their chest because they want to look good, but they want to work their legs, um, which is fine. But if you like the cognitive benefits, like if you want to feel strong, it's your body, it wants a solid foundation. And you actually don't get that feeling of strength until you get some mass on your legs, which is really funny. It's weird, but it, we tend to be psychologically you know, we're, we're hardwired by evolution and you won't know until you start playing those games. But so there's weird stuff affiliated. I mean, there's VO max matters, a couple other indicators that you would think matter. Um, but the point is we're finding that if you're keeping the, the engine in shape and the, as I said, healthcare technology is advancing on exponential growth curves and it was going crazy anyways. And then COVID happened. Right. So, you know, all the quantum, low hanging fruit, for, for example, where quantum computers are um, new drugs. Drug discovery is really low hanging fruit for quantum. And, uh, you know, it was five or six or seven years out 
eight years out from being legit and something we could probably do at a like, oh, that's a real technology. That's not just vaporware before COVID, right? Now, everybody who's got a quantum computer company is like, oh my God, I can, I can, I can discover drugs. You know, we can do it faster than anybody. Like, give us some money. And people are like, if you look at healthcare investments into things like like that stuff, it's going crazy. Um, so all this stuff just got sped up, right? Um, and so that's what I think, right? I mean, the question you should be asking is, what's it going to be like when you're 110? Are we going to be able to do it then? Uh, that interesting question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's certainly some cognitive decline factors that nobody has really super studied around flow, right? We know your memory declines as you get older. We think there are lots of different pharmacological interventions, stem cell, blah, blah, blah. There's lots of stuff being thrown at that particular puzzle. Um, and even, you know, I partner Adam Ghazali on my board. He's a, a scientist at UCSF. He has a video game that resets cognitive decline in older adults. And it's approved by the Federal Drug Administration on the cover of Nature a couple of years ago. Um, and so, first of all, healthcare and entertainment are now the same field, which is crazy enough. But besides that, um, you know, it, it doesn't, cognitive decline is like seven different things wrong going on in your brain, but this can reset like three of them very, very quickly, a couple of weeks now, six weeks, I think, worth of gaming. Um, to that of a 21-year-old. Like the effects are legit, significant, and so much more of that stuff is coming. So I think we're going to see, you know, I think we're going to see like, and what I think it's going to lead to is a really interesting sort of like more flow means more creativity, right? And so I think we could see a really interesting like renaissance of like shit that comes out of people who are over 70, right? Like whole new third acts, fourth acts, fifth acts that we've not seen before. Um, Cause it, you know, it's one thing when you're getting to 70 and yeah, 75 is when you're probably going to die. But if you're getting to 70 and a hundred is when you're probably going to die. Um, that's, that's 30 years. I mean, you know, I built an empire in 30 years or, you know, my equivalent of an empire, like what can I do with another 30 years? I don't, you know what I mean? Stick around. Oh, tell me about it. Like, I, I personally wish we had a bit more time, Stephen, so we could dive further into this. Um, we're definitely going to have to continue this conversation at another, another time, please. Um, one, one final question that I have, because I only thought we only had 30 minutes, so I apologize for that. Um, but one final question that I have for you, this has been nagging me on my mind, but what has been the worst piece of advice you've ever received from somebody over the years that you've been studying? The worst piece of advice. I don't. That's interesting. I honestly, to God, um, I don't think I've ever, I've got a really good truth filter. Like I was a journalist for a very long time and I'm a scientist, right? So like to get, and I've got like heavyweight people surrounding me. So you got to get through like all of our bullshit detectors. And (laughs) it's been this way for a long time. Um, I think like, I'm sure there's, God, I don't, it's so lame. You asked this great last question and I've got nothing for you. I really, I really don't. I can't think of, I mean, the only, the thing that comes to mind, 
is everybody told me to quit mm. at every step of the way. You have, I mean, like you really, and like they tried to fail me in high school because my, my senior project was poetry and I was very punk rock and rebellious and my poetry offended the school. So they literally tried to fail me. Like we literally, I did, my mother called up the school and was like, look, we live in a first amendment free press country. And if you fail my son, that's fine. I will, my next phone call is to the nightly news. Like, like well, she went to war. Um, I like, they asked me to leave my undergraduate creative writing program because nobody knew what I was doing. And I was too disruptive people everywhere along the way. I will, I was laughing, but, um, there was a point when Rise of Superman hit three or four or five different national bestseller lists. Like it was on like three different New York Times lists and the Wall Street Journal and some all at once. My mother called me up and she said, so Stephen, you know all those times I told you, you probably don't want to be a writer and you should do something else. I was wrong. I was like 46 years old by then, right? I mean, like you really have to understand that like, Everybody told me to quit every step along the way. Um, so if there was ever bad advice, it was that. It was take a safety job, right? Like stop betting on yourself. This is crazy. Take it, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, like that was, I, I just never took it. Mm. Mostly because I'm a moron who was dropped his, on his head a lot as a small child, right? Like if I had any common sense whatsoever, I would have taken it. But like, I don't. And thank God, you know. Thank God you didn't because otherwise you probably wouldn't be here. Your new book. So you've got a new book coming out called The Art of Impossible, um, which is already topping the charts. It's going crazy on Amazon. I had a look. Uh, and it looks at peak performance. And you look at the secrets from elite performers, athletes, artists, scientists, CEOs, and much more. Um, and what I want to ask you is there a specific trend or set of similarities that you have seen when you were looking at peak performers that you, that you noticed like similarities or uh, things yeah, like that? That's the entire thing. Yeah, that's essentially what the entire book is. And the core idea at the heart of the book is called the art of impossible. And the core idea is when we say peak performance, all we mean is getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. That's all we mean by peak performance. And when you say biology, that's a limited toolkit. And one of the ways to think about this is flow is optimal performance. It's the body performing at its very best. And flow optimizes a bunch of systems. Those are the only systems that make up peak performance. And there, there's, essentially four components. There's a, there's, these are, and these are skill sets. These are sets of skills. So they're catch all terms and we can go into them, but there's a motivation suite. There's a set of tools that fall under motivation. Learning is the second component. Creativity is the third component and flow is the fourth component. And one of the ways to think about all this is motivation matters to be performance because it gets you into the game. Right. Like you can't, if you, if you don't, without the motivation, you're not getting off the couch. You're not, there's no conversation, right? Learning is actually what allows you to grow and continue to play as you can move along and creativity, especially art impossible is about how do you go after really big, high, hard goals? It can be, it's a peak performance system. 
can be used by anybody, but the book is really focused on so-called impossible goals. And I define that capital I impossible is that which has never been done before. And that's why I study, right? For 30 years, those are my subjects, but it's meant to be utilized by anybody interested in what I call small I impossible, that which you believe is impossible for you. We can go more into detail about those things in a second, but if you're going after impossible goals, what does that mean? Small line possible. It means there's no clear path between where you are, where you want to get to, and statistically bad odds of success. So small line possibles are one example from my own life. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, working class, blue collar, steel mill town. I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know how to become a writer, right? It was like I woke up one morning and said, mom, dad, tonight, when I grow up, I'm going to be an elf. No, <laughs> I'm going to be a dinosaur. No, I'm going to be a dinosaur elf, right? I mean, that was like, for all anybody knew about, here's how the fuck you become a writer, right? Like nobody had a clue. That's a small line possible. Rising out of trauma, overcoming trauma, small line possible. Um, rising out of poverty, uh, getting paid for what you love to do, becoming world-class at anything. I don't care what it is. Becoming a successful entrepreneur. I always say, I think the first small eye impossible most of us sort of get in the ring with is how do you get your first kiss, mm -hmm. Right. First boyfriend or girlfriend, you're 10, you're 11, you're 12. Suddenly you're awake to the fact that there are people in the world and you're attracted to some of them and you have no idea how to do anything else about it, right? Like it's a total fucking mystery. You're like, I, I, I will give my arm for a girlfriend, but like somebody, playbook, please, right? That's a small line possible. So if you're interested in small line possible, creativity is how you steer. Right. It's how, like it's how you go from where I don't know where I am. Well, I'm here. I want to go someplace. I don't know. Where, how do I get there? Creativity and flow is optimal performance. It turbo boosts all this stuff. So to put this in a slightly different context, when training people in flow, which we're very, very, very good at the Flow Research Collective, we probably do it from, you know, train more people than anybody in the universe. We started to find, holy crap, if you use the neurobiology, the neuroscience, and, and the reason I emphasize neuroscience, psychology is, mech, is, is a metaphor, always, right? I'll give you a simple example. If you use the phrase mindset, when most people say mindset, they mean attitude towards life. When psychologists say mindset, they actually mean attitude towards learning and when neurobiologists talk about mindset, they're like, well, if you have what is known as a growth mindset, when new information enters the brain, you turn on these parts of the brain and don't turn off these, right? Like that's what they're talking about. If you can get down to the mechanism, all the other stuff doesn't matter. What matters is the very effect, neurobiological effect that you're trying to achieve. That's So if you Go from flow that way. It turns out this thing that was remarkably hard to train is remarkably easy to train. Mm -hmm. But, big but, big but, this is what we found out the hard way. I can train you up in flow, meaning I can boost the amount of flow in your life 70 to 80% pretty much for putting you through my zero to dangerous training. And I know this because we measure flow pre and post, and that's the average. But it's not everybody. Now it's different because we've changed the training a lot to accommodate this. But in the beginning, we were, there was this like crash. People would get huge upticks in flow. And two months later, they like, they crash. And by the way, you think people are pissed off before? Turn up the flow button, right? Give them way more flow juice and then say, okay, no more happy drug, right? How, how happy are your clients then, right? And what we discovered is it wasn't about the flow. It was about motivation, learning, and creativity. The stuff that flow amplifies most 
um, and actually creativity or collaboration, cooperation, all this stuff that flow amplifies the most. If those skills aren't really baked in, I'll give you a simple example. Flow states have triggers, right? We can go into more detail. We might have already, but these are preconditions that lead to more flow. The, one of the most important ones is the challenge skills balance, or challenge skills ratio. It says we give them the most flow, we pay the most attention to the task at hand, which gives us the greatest chance of producing flow. The challenge slightly exceeds our skill set. So you want to stretch, but not snap, right? And we can go into a lot more detail and talk about the neurobiology and blah, blah, blah. But like that's, you got to push your skills to the utmost, and that makes it a lot easier to get into flow, right? Point. When you push your skills to the utmost, those are the ready conditions for learning. But if you don't know how to learn, right, you don't have actually great learning skills, including like, for example, most peak performers develop what I call truth filters, a way to evaluate information quickly, right? If you're a scientist, it's the scientific method. If you came up like me as a journalist, you learned certain rules about investigative journalism that are very similar to the scientific method, um, though I actually think journalism done right is a little more rigorous. Um, believe it or not, done right. But um, there's Elon Musk likes to talk about first principle thinking, right? There's a bunch of different truth filters out there. The point is, if you don't have a truth filter to evaluate information quickly, you can't learn quickly. So you can't keep pace with the accelerated learning, right? Then there's like a bunch of other things. I said, there's a suite of tools that you would put under learning. So if you don't have those tools, Flow may be amping up your skills to the utmost, but if you're not onboarding those skills and progressing those skills and learning those skills, you can't live a high flow lifestyle. You'll only get it to the end of your skills and then you're going to fall off that cliff, right? Same thing, flow massively heightens creative problem solving. If you don't know how to think outside the box, you never learn to do those kinds of things. I could turn creativity up to maximum, you're not going to know what's a good idea, what's a bad idea. They're all the ideas are going to come in, right? Because that's what happens in flow, but you won't have the ability to go, good idea, bad idea. Oh, this is the flow high talking to me. This is just the dopamine. This isn't real. This is ego, right? Like all that stuff comes along the way. And some of it is familiarity with flow and how the state actually amplifies behavior. And so you don't, you know, a lot of people get into flow early on when you train them up. If they're not used to the state and they act like teenagers getting stoned for the first time. Oh, look at the pretty colors, right? Like, it's not like, wow, this is a state of peak performance. I should use this. This is, you know, this is, this is it. I'm, I'm here to do some work, right? Which is what it's designed for. Most people just get blown away by the experience and that's fine, but you're missing the opportunity and why the experience is there in the first place. And it's not right. It's there to help you get farther faster mm. um, in a sense. So, you asked a big question about what's common, literally everything in the art of impossible. If I were to put it in a simpler term, and then I'll shut up because I've been talking now for <laughs> 10 minutes. No, I love um, it. Go for it. Is this when right? Read the art of impossible. They had their experience is oh wow, I'm doing that. I'm doing that. I'm doing that. Oh, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. I didn't know why I was doing that. Oh, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing, I should definitely do that. Right. They don't, most peak performers have 50 to 60% of the stuff already. Right. And they've probably heard about the other, the remaining like 20% more, but they just haven't bothered to do it because they don't know how it fits in or if they should do it, or is it a waste of my blah, 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 all that stuff. 
But what the research has told us over the past five years this is the big deal is we now know that, hey, all this stuff, there's an order, there's a sequence, there's a way through. So the answer is yes, there's commonalities. And when you boil it down the way I explain it at the end of the book, after there's a bunch of onboarding shit, but it really comes down to about six things that peak performers do every day and about seven things peak performers do every week. And the six things every day, some of them, three or four of them take five minutes long. Some of them are like, the thing you're already doing, but a different way of approaching it, maybe, right? Like, so it's not even like, what's funny is not, the time commitment is not excessive. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of work, you know what I mean? You gotta like to prepare yourself and to, like, there's a lot of stuff to do, but like none of it is, the, uh, the hardest part about this stuff is it's so simple in a sense that people don't believe it mm. more than anything else. Cause your biology was designed by evolution millions of years ago right so getting it to work for you your the, the levers are not they're not sexy i, I always say that the, the one of the biggest problems with this book is that everything in it is deadly practical and incredibly useful and is the shed none of it is going to get you laid if you talk about it in a bar <laughs> you're not it's not going to I, somebody pointed out that the success it gets you is very sexy and that might get you laid but like none of it is like Oh, dude, check out this EEG brainwave device. I'm going to hack my brainwaves into a creative state or check out this new drug. It's not that. It's none of that. Right? Like, it just doesn't work that way. And that's one of the biggest blocks people have. There's no secret secret. Like, literally, there's no secret secret. Mm. I could listen to you talk and go on about this all day long. But one of the things that I was curious about uh, when you were talking about and explaining all that, have you looked at, like the flow state with disabled people at all? So um, we have been starting to look at flow and disabled veterans and athletes. Yeah. Um, and we've been working with a couple of organizations that way, but where it's very early, it's very early. The, I, what I can tell you is there's, the answer is yes, and it's hella promising. And right, like all this stuff you would assume seems to be true, but I'm very cautious with this stuff. You know what I mean? I like to follow the data. And I also, especially like if you're dealing with people who are disabled, if you do like, I just, we, we play with live ammo. They've already played with enough live ammo. You know what I mean? Like there, there are a lot of people whose lives are hard enough and I really don't want to break anything, right? And so I'm, I proceed very slowly and cautiously. And maybe some people would like me to step on it you know what I mean? And they're welcome to like come in and take my training and step up. You know what I mean? I'm just, that's how I am because, you know, I, I, I know a bunch of people who have, you know, those kinds of challenges in their life and their lives are hard. You don't want to make them harder. Yeah. I used so. to work with disabled people all the time. People that had uh, a ranging form of disabilities. It could either be learning disabilities. It could be Down syndrome. It could be all kinds of things. And I've always been curious, like, because their their way of looking at life is completely different to how I would look at life. Their way of learning is completely different to how I would learn things. So I've always been curious about, okay, what would it be like if they got into this flow state? Would it be much better? Like, would they excel? Because some of them have got like astronomical abilities that I don't even have, <laughs> like some of the time. So. Yeah. So, and it's, and it's, there's all, it's a, it's really complicated. Like people have made the argument 
Um, and I, I, smart people have made the argument that ADHD is actually a natural adaptation that allows people to get into flow better. And, um, that's a wild ass idea. And as a guy with ADHD, like certainly kind of true for me, you know what I mean? Like, okay. I don't know if that's true. That's interesting. And the guy who coined the term ADHD, um, Ned Hallowell, who's a, who's a friend of mine is the guy who first put forth that argument. And, um, so, you know, very respected Harvard professor, you know, on this topic that said, you know, and, does a little OCD help with flow? You know what I mean? Those are like interesting questions. And um, I, the way I, um, and it's, inter- it, there's, there's really crazy neurobiological questions. Like when you get into like Down syndrome or autism, so like those few, like far spectrum stuff. Um, I'm a little on the spectrum, but like you move farther along, you know, um, what does that look like kind of thing? And it gets really strange in, in ways that like, for example, one thing that, uh, how we imagine, remember the past is also the same as how we imagine the future episodic memory and future simulation. They're both programs run by the default mode network basically. And they rely on very specific parts of the default mode network to be amp- to be most amplified. Some of those things, some of those parts work a little differently with some of these conditions. And does it help? Does it hinder? Like we we're barely even like aware of like which parts are, you know what I mean? And now you're getting into like, I can, we're looking, we've been studying hard to figure out what is like, is there a neural circuit for flow? And we think there's an answer, but I always tell people like, we're working on the neural circuit for flow, but like, what it actually does once it gets deep into the motor cortexes or what it gets does when it goes into associative memory, like the temporal cortex, right? And those are things that can be affected by downs, by, by a lot of the conditions that you're talking about, learning disorders and things like that. Um, and is it an individual? But you know what I mean? Like does individual personality, does your cultural history, does your childhood nutrition, all that stuff, like who the knows right like at all like huge freaking mysteries everywhere and again when people are already like you're already operating from like a little beyond you know behind everybody else in terms of how challenging your days are i like to be cautious you know i'll give you an example i was years ago i was staying at a good friend of mine's house him and his son in, in Hawaii and he was lending me his guest room while I could report a book. And both of them are very, I have a little bit of Asperger's. They've got way more. And I forgot that. And like, they were really cool to me. So I cleaned their house as a way of saying, thank you. Vacuumed everything, picked everything up, put it all away. They both came home and lost their freaking mind. Like I touched all their stuff and moved it around. And like, it was the worst thing ever. And I like, like the sun didn't talk to me. I had to leave. Like it was bad. It was bad. You know what I mean? So like, what do you do? Like that kind of stuff when you're really trying to like do somebody a solid, like, Oh my God, you've hooked me up. Totally. Let me clean your house top to bottom for you. And I decided to riot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you really sort of learn your lesson early with that. shit. You're like, Oh wow. Yeah. Different worldview, different reality. I got to respect that. And I don't quite understand it. So I proceed with caution and a lot of humility. I think it's very interesting like where technology is going, where science is actually heading as well with 
all this stuff, like with flow research, I think you're pioneering it. So it's, it's very, I'll be very curious and very interested to see in the next couple of years, even where it actually goes from here. Uh, and I'll be watching very, very closely uh, in fact, and maybe we'll have to do a part three in the future when you, when you break it, <laughs> you're like, I've, I've got it. <laughs> We're able to do it. So, you know, okay. I, it's anything, anything is possible, right? Like I think. Oh no, I, I, I think we're going to do it. I mean, I, like, I, I think we're getting closer and closer. And it, we flow research collective and we, the, the field, you know what I mean? Like there are a lot of people, several of whom are on my board and I work with who are um, going after, we're trying to build a biophysical based flow detector. But for example, Adam Ghazali, who's on my board, who's a neuroscientist, He's working on a multimodal state detector. He basically wants to figure out, right, like what altered state. And, and there are various people, you know, my, my buddy Jack Alada, who's another crazy neuroscientist, he thinks he's got an algorithm that solves, like a machine learning algorithm that solves this problem, blah, blah, blah. So my point is, these are all very smart people. There's a lot, there's a ton more, and we're all mm. pointing a lot of energy right here. And it's fast, you know what I mean? Like. In a, in a weird sense, like I know it seems really, really slow and it's super slow for me also, but like in the mid nineties, when I started this work, emotions were not a real topic for neuroscientists and consciousness wasn't a real topic for neuroscientists. And here we are. And yes, it's 28 years later. And I get that's a big swatch of time, but I'm also like, oh, thank God we're building something that's going to measure altered states. And we can have real discussions about this shit out loud based on fact and science. So some lunatic on acid trying to tell me about his fucking vision, right? <laughs> like, thank God. It's, it's gone almost like that. It's like a blink of an eye and then you learn something new or something new comes out and you're always going, going to try and improve on the last thing that you just researched. And there's always something new coming out, which is both exciting and I think also scary in the same way, like depending on what, you're researching and what you're studying. And I think technology, now here's a question that I wanted to ask you definitely because you've also looked at new emerging tech and science and all that sort of stuff uh, for the future. What are some technologies and things that are coming out in, in the near future that people may not be really aware of that should be aware of it? It's well, yes, I wrote a book called The Future is Faster Than You Think. It's sort of, it's like, I got a 350 page answer for you. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, here, here, here's what you, here's the, here's the issue. We are living in a world where there are, by last count, 22 different technologies accelerating along exponential growth curves. So they're doubling in power on a regular basis. We're also entering in the first era where these technologies are starting to converge, right? It's no longer robotics or artificial intelligence or nanotech or symbio. It's the intersection, right? And when you get converging exponentials, you get a whole is much bigger than the sum of parts effect. And Ray Kurzweil, who really, you know, looked at the looked at the math more than anybody, has said that over the course, before the end of the 21st century, we're going to experience 20,000 years with the technological change. So we're going birth of agriculture to the industrial revolution twice in the next 100 years. And we're going to go ahead 100 years of technological change in the next 10. So think back to 1921, 
we think up till now and crunch that into the next 10 years. Faster looks at every major industry on earth, literally the 11 biggest industries on earth and looks at what's real right now that's arriving and where's it going. I mean, you know, the holodeck from Star Trek is a thing. They're building it. It's going to be in like, you'll be able to experience a holodeck by 2030. They'll be in movie theaters kind of thing by 20, in amusement parks, 2030, 2035. They're like in homes, 2040, 45, they're in our apartment. You know what I mean? Like, so like anything you can think of is coming. And what's weird and the reason it's so hard to talk about this question is to give you an example from Adam Ghazali, whose name I mentioned earlier. So um, <laughs> I gave a talk at NBC, the big TV studio uh, network, not too, a couple years ago. And, um, and I said, look, guys, you've got to understand that when you get converging technologies, you get converging markets. So like healthcare, where Adam works, um, and entertainment, where you work, have been totally separate fields that have fucking nothing to do with one another. But Adam has a technology that's on the market as of right now, it was approved by the FDA two years ago, and it's a game. It's a video game. It treats cognitive decline in older adults. Um, and uh, you would literally go to a doctor now in the US and get a prescription for a video game. Like that's real. So when I said to NBC, I was like, look, you guys don't even think you're in the healthcare market. You have no idea that you're in the healthcare market. In fact, all the major tech companies, Apple, Google, take your pick, who are all getting into healthcare and also have content divisions, who do you think is going to be leading this charge, right? If healthcare is becoming an AI science and these are the AI experts and they're getting into healthcare and content, where do you come in? You're just a content provider. You don't have anything to do with healthcare, so you don't have any knowledge, right? Like that's, so you ask what's going to change. Everything is going to change. Not what's, the better question is what's going to say the same. People are going to want things faster and cheaper. That's Jeff Bezos was right. Like besides that, I don't know what the hell else is going to stay the same. Mm. Is there anything that scares you though? Coming, There's coming a lot of stuff that scares me, but it's not new. The technology doesn't scare me. Climate change scares me. Biodiversity die-off scares me, right? People um, who live in boxes and stare at boxes all day, so their brain starts to filter out the natural world so they didn't even, that scares me. Um, those are the things that scare me. I'm not, um, the stuff that we can see, I'm less concerned about in a sense, um, though I feel like the environmental stuff is often still very invisible to most people, you know. I'm in it for empathy for all. I'm in it for plants, animals, and ecosystems. So like, yeah, that stuff scares me a lot. But like, do I think, you know, an AI is going to wake up and take over the universe? No, no, not at all. Do I think there's going to be robotic driven technological unemployment that's completely widespread? No, I think that's absurd. Um, though I do think there's going to be challenges around technological unemployment and we're working on some of them at the Flow Research Collective with like some of the st stuff we're doing. I don't, there are problems for sure. Problems are not, you know what I mean? There are growing pains. We're about to grow up really fast. And we saw this this past year in COVID, right? Until this year, it took five years to get a vaccine through the pipeline. It cost billions of dollars. There are 110 different vaccines and cures 
that are in human trials. And it all happened in under a year, um, literally. Like nothing like that's ever happened before in the history of the universe. And by the way, the same technology that gives us new medicines, it also gives us new foods and new, I mean, like, right, the spinoff, the what's right just downstream, what's going to start coming online even faster because AI just went gangbusters thanks to COVID. So did biosensing. So did, you know what I mean, quantum computing. So did, so none of that stuff, um, I'm not scared by any of it, though, don't get me wrong. I, like I have the same loss aversion everybody else has, right? Like I like it this way. Don't take it away. Cause I'm sure what's coming next is going to fucking suck. You know what I mean? Like I do that same as a lot of other people um, that, and I'm very, I myself, I'm not an early tech adopter. I'm like mostly cause I like my life. Mm. So if you've got any kind of technological thing that's coming into my life, you have to prove to me that it's not going to damage anything before I want to get anywhere near it. Cause like it works fine. I don't need your shiny, shiny, blanky, blanky. Um, you know what I mean? I'm the guy who goes to the car dealer and I'm like, can I get one without a screen and a manual transmission, please? Like, you know, I like your airbags and your stereo, but like, I really, I don't need the screen and I'd like my stick shift back, please. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. So I actually bought a car because it had a screen in it. That's the only reason why I bought the car. Thank God it wasn't actually a dud. <laughs> but that was just a, a ludicrous reason why I bought a car. So it, it just... I mean, a lot of people make decisions that way. And, you know, technology is the promise of an easier tomorrow. That's what it is, mm. right? I want this thing because it's going to make my life easier tomorrow. And I know that's the devil's bargain right? Every tech I bring in is more time from me. And I like, no, I'm sorry. Just no, that shit is dumb, right? Like, honest to God, when people, I still make my, uh, I want to have phone meetings. I don't have a Zoom call. I don't want to see you. I don't want you to see me. Chances are I'm wearing my pajamas and I've got boogers hanging out of my nose. Come on, man. Let me work. Doesn't make me any less of an expert on flow. Just means you shouldn't be looking at me right now. Yeah. Everyone has those moments, man. Like, so what? <laughs> it's part of being human, I reckon. Um, what are some things, Stephen, that you do to sort of unwind yourself from all the craziness, all the busyness in the world? Well, I have an active recovery protocol in place. So I know because of my day has a clear goal to do list. I know when my day is done, right? I've completed everything, check. And like, I go literally from there um, directly into an infrared sauna um, for 40 minutes. And if I don't do an infrared sauna, chances are I'm gonna do an Epsom salt bath. And this is like probably five nights a week. Now, mind you, I ski or mountain bike or would like my, uh, what I, I'm with professional athletes. I'm 53 years old and I got to keep up because they're not going to freaking wait. So like I got to be in a different kind of shape than a lot of people. So like in my 53 with a lot of broken bones, like I need it, but I find burnout. It is very, if you have regular access to flow, doing something fun, skiing, mountain biking, dancing, giving speech, I don't care what it is, reading um, and an active recovery protocol provided you don't have a passive aggressive boss 
who keeps moving the goalposts. So you've got one of those jobs where it's two steps forward, one step back, because that demotivating back here, that's terrible. Like quit, get at you. When that situation arises, if it persists, like it's literally the call, the number one cause of burnout and you're going to burn out and it's going to crush you. So other than those situations, when those situations arise, I take drastic measures, usually after I've lost my mind because they're sneaky. You know what I mean? I'm like everybody else. I get you get caught up and finally like, oh, wait a minute. I've got no control here. And you're a psychopath. I'm out. Right. But I, I, I get just as screwed up as everybody else, you know, and notice when it's too late. But like and I also I have learned. So I'm an extreme introvert. And what that means is like I ski a lot. I have to ski alone a lot. And right. Like that's like, I can't to reboot. I really actually need time by myself when I'm not thinking, right. Like time in it when my alone. So like I have to, I do a lot of stuff. that's a little more extreme than some people because I'm such an introvert and what I do for a living, you know, like it or not. And I, I this is not a complaint. This is, I think a fair trade. But like I get to research flow and I get to write books for a living. And as a result, pretty much with the, with the exception of about five to seven people, every room I've been, been in for the past decade, I'm the entertainment, right? <laughs> That's the job. That's the, it's I, like nobody would have told if I, they would have told me that was the job ahead of time. I don't think I would have taken the job, right? Like you don't know that. They don't tell you that, right? And, um, but once you get there and you're like, oh, wow, that's the job but I get to do this, this, and this. Okay. Like I'll take the job. Like that's not, I was talking to Laird Hamilton about this. Um, not too long ago. I said, Laird, you know, if I, I met him when he was 33 and I was 27. I said, if we would, if I would have walked in and said, dude, do you know how many times for the rest of your life, you're going to have to answer questions about whether or not you're scared towing into jaws. Like, he's like, I know he's like, it's part of the job. I have to say the same thing four times. I always the joke. I always make about myself is, Chick sent me high, the godfather of flow, the man who coined the goddamn term. He had to define the term twice a semester at the start of the intro to flow class that he taught as a, you know, I had to define the goddamn term five times a day for 20 years, right? <laughs> you wouldn't forget like, it. I, I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, like, I didn't know, like, but yeah, oh, guess it turns out that's the job. Okay. Cool. It also means I get to be a non-neuroscientist who studies flow and what a privilege. So like, I'll take it. It's just a funny, you know, I know, I mean this in a sort of humble tongue in cheek, but it's like, it's a little surprising way. Mm. I'm a, I'm an introvert too. And I find myself that I need my time in the morning, like early in the morning out in nature, either doing some form of exercise, meditation, practice, you name it. That is my two hours to myself before I get on with the day, before I have to see anyone. And it's funny because when I, there's like a couple of crazy people that do get up at the same time that I do, uh, I, I see them walking past me. I don't even look at them. I just look straight, straight past. And it's not out of being disrespectful. It's because I don't want to engage. Oh, dude, nobody is happier with the COVID rules at the ski areas. <laughs> you've got mass, you're totally covered. You know what I mean? Like, it's really like, and it's also, it's really funny. There's, um, you all, you can always tell with skiers who's wired this way. Cause we're all, we wear all black. Our headphones are on the outside. So you can see, we're like listening to music. Like, don't talk to me. We're all, all in black. We can't see our faces. This is skier code for 
leave me the fuck alone. I'm doing my thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, couple more questions for you, Stephen, because I don't want to be mindful of your time. Really enjoy this the second part. Um, so, for example, what happens when our brain is in the flow state and we experience a challenging moment, a a more traumatic moment, and we are in the flow state? Does that damage our brain? No. Um, I mean, flow was that. That's what flow is designed for, right? It is. Flow is optimized crisis management, essentially, right? That's what it evolved for in a sense. Um, So one way to think about it is um, in a crisis situation, because flow amplifies all the performance skill sets, like you're literally like, you've got, I like to say 360 degree creativity, meaning like whatever direction you're going to turn, you're going to be at your best in. It may not, you know what I mean? Like you, so that said, there's three, two other answers for you here. So there is a whole group of people in Australia led by a researcher named Christian Swan. I call him the Aussie clutch posse. So, <laughs> uh, and Christian has argued, he's a flow researcher, and he's argued that there is a, if, so let's say you're a golfer, he does a lot of work on golfers, and you're in a flow state, you play 16 great holes, and your caddy walks up to you on the 16th hole and says, dude, you're a shot off the lead. If you fucking nail these next two holes, you're going to win the masters. Right? So what they've done is you're in flow and they've just massively up the challenge level. He argues that there's a different state you get into that he calls clutch. That is flow with an added goal pressure, right? Like, and he says peak performers can switch out of it's in a slightly different state. My argument with Christian has always been, He's a psychologist, so he wants to start with the psychology. And I'm like, dude, until you start with the, give me the neurobiological mechanism that proves it's different than the neurobiological mechanism I'm looking at for flow, we can have this conversation. But until now, you're like hair splitting over something that I don't think is neurobiologically real yet. He might be, but not yet. And I, so I like Christian. I think he's a smart man. I love his research. He's done really cool peak performance research. So that's the second answer to your question which is that may be true and I may be wrong. Um, and I'm more than like, cool. You know what I mean? I got no problem, but I'm wrong. Just show me the neuroscience so I can believe you or not believe you. But right now it's like, it's a hot air argument to me. It's a neat idea maybe, but it's the other thing I want to say is, um, I do think so my wife and I run a dog sanctuary, right? We do hospice care and special needs care. So we have a lot of dying animals that we're caring for at any one time. And we love them. So it is not frequent, but when we used to have, when we used to have 40 dogs at once, we don't anymore. We're, our numbers are, are smaller, but when we were doing like 40 hospice cases at once, it wasn't unusual for me to like go skiing. At least this would happen like once a month, I'd go skiing and I'd come back and one of the dogs was dying. Right. And I like come home, my wife will be like, look, I don't want to like, you know, but and that I have to, that's rough. Like it's not going to cause psychological damage, but like you do this thing that's, especially if you were like really needed the flow state and it was like, you were trying to heal some stuff with it. You know what I mean? Reset. Like if it's just like a random ski day or writing day and I got into flow and you're kicking me out, 
that's one, but like in the, when, when the flow you're, you're searching for, and you know how this is, like if you're working your ass off really hard and you go do whatever it is that brings, you really want that flow state and you really want the space it's going to carve around your life afterwards. And so if that gets perturbed, I find that is, it is emotionally difficult mm -hmm. to switch into like, and it does not, um, I don't think it puts you in your, you're not like your creative decision-making best under those conditions. I don't know neurobiology. Like you don't tend to carry the flow in with you. You just become, and in, in a sense, like you, you become somebody just like anybody else in a crisis and a little worse because you've sort of like, it's been a really abrupt shift, right? Like that. And, I, and I, there's not a ton of data on it. You know what I mean? Like, it's also because like, I mean, where you see a lot of it sometimes if in action sports or some of the, like the physical creative arts, whether it's improv or playing in a band, any of that stuff, like, or sports, um, shit can be going really, really right. And then it not right. Like really not like mountain biking. You can be deep in a flow state and you can hit that random rock and it's going to upend you and you're, you're going to go in, right? This was, by the way, <laughs> two days ago, mini flow state. I'm skiing. I'm in the freaking kitty terrain park, the kitty terrain park. And I'm like doing a bunch of little mini rail slides. And there's this weird feature at the end. It's like a wall ride thing. And I'm like, oh, I think I can just spin in backwards and five, four, like whatever. I've got my idea of what I'm going to try to do on this thing. And I don't know what happened, but like one minute I was standing upright, the next minute I hit the ground as hard as I, like I, it was the most shocking, like I caught an edge and just like flapped right over. Um, and I happened to let, so I've been, when you are on skis and you're learning to spin, I spin in one direction. And when you fall and you catch an edge, you're going to impact one spot on your ass, one spot on your shoulder and your head. And I have hit that spot on my ass and that spot on my shoulder and my, like this combination, literally my ass is so black and blue. Cause I've done this like six times this season, but this was the worst. Like, and I was like, that's not fair. Like I was so damn in flow and now I'm in the car driving home because I can't use my goddamn leg. <laughs> and this is not like that happens. I don't think it was traumatic. And I was laughing about it by the time I got home, but I was like, wow, was that abrupt? Like the universe was like, no more flow for you, Stephen. You've had enough. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, gotcha. I love that. So yeah, I mean, and and it, it, it's a very good question. And the other side, the one, the final thing I want to say, and then um, is that a lot of the work that we have been doing, and this is not yet definitive, so cautious, big. We are looking at the possibility that flow, so. Trauma is traumatic stress creates post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Or it creates traumatic growth or post-traumatic growth, that, right? Post-traumatic growth. And we, this may be the opposite system. Flow may be what leads to post-traumatic growth, right? Like it, there may, there, they seem to be opposite systems. So like there's a deeper level to your question that is really smart and is really there. Like people have talked about use stress, positive stress versus de-stress, distress for a long time now. And they're very right. And those systems are very parallel, similar things. Like if you look at PTSD and what it activates or screws up in the brain, 
It's almost the exact opposite of what flow optimizes. I'm not saying it is, but I'm saying it's like, there's so much overlap. We've been looking very hard at this because it seems like there's similar systems, but does that mean that the malefaction, you know, one goes down the other, like, we don't know. We don't, we're at the front. It's a great question. We're at the front end of this. I don't think anybody else is working on it. Um, but um, it's it's very, somewhere soon, these answers are gonna start coming and you know, we'll know, but it's gonna be a little while, I think. I, I can see it happening. Unless, unless, unless Christian Slondis seems to decide to team up with a neuroscientist and prove me wrong first. <laughs> Christian, if you're we'll, listening. We'll definitely have to see though, but it's very exciting. I could speak to you all day uh, and ask you so many questions because I love this stuff. I'm a huge geek, like I said last time. Um, two more final questions. So your new book, where can people find it? Where can people order it? Uh, Amazon, or you can go to theartofimpossible.com. Either or you can order through the site, you can order on Amazon. It's everywhere, um, apparently. <laughs> it's blowing up all i know is ads for my book are stalking my wife around facebook and that's a bad thing like when my shit stalks my relatives i get phone calls right like i'm not I'm like it's not me algorithms algorithms um i was getting it the other day actually i'm like i know steven like this is this is cool Dude, i get stalked by my own ads <laughs> i get my own ads how's that for freaky like seriously uh, like you think your life is strange. Wait till you like open something up and that you like want to watch a YouTube thing, right? And simply you're like looking at yourself and you're like, what the? Yeah. <laughs> that, nobody told me that was going to happen either. No. Again, if this was in the contract ahead of time, it was the small print and I didn't see it. <laughs> that's what they do. They get you. <laughs> um, I'll make sure that's all in the show notes below. Thank you. When this episode does go live, I highly encourage everyone to go and buy the book and buy every other book that you've got as well. Uh, my final question for you, Stephen, this is my all time favorite question. I ask everyone at the end. So it's a hypothetical one. So just imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. You've accomplished pretty much everything you've ever wanted to accomplish. You've answered all the questions, but now it's time for people to look back on your life. So all your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done, don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic. Been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Let's just say you better get to be very stoned before you show me that film. Okay. First off, let's just, let's just be <laughs> clear. Because um, I'm a little wary of that film. I may need barbiturates. <laughs> I get the weed. <laughs> Ketamine? Um, no. Uh, so I um yeah, I um I um I don't answer legacy questions because I don't think it's my job. Right? Like my job is to sort of like live the questions and do the work that I'm gonna do. It's other people's job to do all that stuff. I really like, I don't think of it that way. The things that I'm proud of are like, they're really stupid things that everybody's, I'm proud that I'm progressing as a writer. I'm proud that I'm progressing as a thinker, science thinker about flow. I'm proud that I'm progressing at 53 still as a skier. You know what I mean? Like that's what, um, and I'm a creative. And so creatives are all about next. You know what I mean? Like almost everything in my life 
has in some way or another been a way to figure out how to calm the world into letting me write another book, right? And letting me write another book and letting me write another book. And um, which is not to say that like, there are books that I write, you know what I mean? Abundance, Stealing Fire, and even this one, The Art of Impossible. These are books I actually wrote for the world. Like they weren't particularly fun, but I thought they were vi- like, Art Impossible is the first, it's a how-to. It's a peak performance mm-hmm. reference, literally a how-to. And if you've ever tried to write a like a big think how-to that's well-written and exciting to read, which is what I tried to do, um, and think I succeeded, it's a nightmare. From a writer perspective, it's hard, it's pain in the ass. This was the least flow. The book took five years and it was the least flow experience I've ever had in my life, but it was the right thing to do. You know, I, like meaning like I knew uh, this was stuff was in my head and it had to get out somewhere, you know what I mean? So like you do some of that along the way, but I don't, I don't think about the legacy stuff. I would hope that I've made the world a better place for animals. Like that, I think I can, you know, I, 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 I want to advance flow science and research. I want to write great books. I want to make the world a better place for animals. That's, those have been my missions forever. I think I've advanced flow science and research. I'd like to keep going and do more. I don't think I've done an iota of what I want to do, but like, those are going to be the things I care about. And the animals one, you know what I mean? Like, I'm a big fan of the Lorax. I speak for the Lorax. I speak for the trees because the trees have no tongues. You know what I mean? Like the, I care about like I'm the underdogs, underdogs, underdogs champion. Find me those people. I'm like, I'm your torchbearer here. Cause I'm just that much of a moron, you know, like that. I'll look at that stuff maybe, but I don't really, I don't really know. And I'm the question makes me nervous for, cause I just don't like, it's not my place. Let somebody else figure out what, like my life was about, or, you know, why I hear it a lot. People are like, this is my mission. And I want this to be my legacy. And I'm like, really? Like I, I, here's the other thing. And then I'll, I do have to actually go, but uh, I, the life I get to live on a daily basis, and this wasn't always the case, but it's post 50, right. But where I am now, it's, I've exceeded all most of my expectations for what I thought was possible. I'm like, all of it's, sort of like above um, what we're, I mean, I was, in a sense, I was heading here, but like, I'm like, wow, holy crap. So like, what's my legacy? I don't know, because like every day I wake up and I ask my staff, how big can we go, right? Like I, those are questions I ask all the time of the people around me and of myself. So like, I don't, I can't say that because honestly, like, I hope I, my, whatever it is, I hope I haven't imagined it yet. You know what I mean? I hope it's bigger than anything I can currently imagine. That's sort of how I think about it. No, I love it. And Stephen, I'll thank you so much for coming on the Storybox podcast and sharing your, your wisdom and your advice. Really do appreciate it. I don't think it's either wisdom or advice, but you're totally welcome because you're a nice guy to talk to. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. 
And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the story box. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.